I think the key difference is that something that used to be a person problem or like something you would have to ask people to do now becomes something that you can ask a machine to do. Suddenly something that becomes a process problem now becomes an engineering problem. Welcome to Nerd Out at Spotify, where we bring you behind the curtain of the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service. Machine learning, open source, clouds, tabs versus spaces. We'll talk to Spotify engineers about interesting tech issues, big and small. You're probably familiar with the concept of declarative programming, where your code describes what your application should do instead of how it should do it. Today, we're talking about declarative infrastructure. It's basically the same idea, but applied to how we manage our infrastructure resources. All those virtual machines, storage buckets, networks, and databases that Spotify's applications rely on in order to function. As it often does, the story begins with our migration to the cloud. Spotify's come a long way from the days where managing our infrastructure meant walking up to a server rack. But even after moving everything to the cloud, we discovered that manually clicking buttons on a web console maybe wasn't the most efficient way for our teams to manage hundreds of resources, let alone the thousands and thousands that we have today. So a few years ago, we decided we had to build and adopt declarative infrastructure. The primary motivation was so we could stop running into the limits of ClickOps, but we found that managing infrastructure as code also unlocked other benefits and opportunities. Adding this layer of abstraction not only enabled us to efficiently and reliably manage our infrastructure at scale, but it also changed how our platform teams could support the rest of the company. To tell us more, we've got David Flemstrom, one of the people who led Spotify through this transformation. So yeah, I'm David. I currently work as a principal PM in the platform mission, but I've been around for a while at Spotify. In two days, I will have been at Spotify for 10 years. So it's a big anniversary coming up for me. Congratulations. Almost. Yeah, thanks. But yeah, I spent a lot of time as an engineer working in the content domain. But a couple of years back, I switched over to work in our infrastructure organization in platform instead. Tell me a little bit about the transition from a feature team to a platform team and why you did that and how that was for you and all of that. I was in a quite interesting spot there because... We were on the one hand a feature team, if you look at it from its business context, you know, we were responsible for delivering the content of Spotify, which is kind of a key feature of Spotify, right? But on the other hand, we were very close to platform organization because we had quite extreme needs compared to many other teams. We built extremely high volume services. We had high throughput, low latency on everything. And so all of our requirements were always near the edge of the bell curve, let's say, in one direction or the other. I always had a sort of natural interest for infrastructure just because we were always needing to push that envelope, basically. And for me, it was very natural then to look at it from the other side. What's the infrastructure we need for these very sort of extreme use cases rather than, okay, what are these extreme use cases and how do I solve that with infrastructure? So then can, tell me a little bit more about what the team was. I think you said something about content, but you didn't, we didn't really explain what it was. Just it has crazy extreme needs and you were there for a long time. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, what most people associate with Spotify is it's an app for listening to music, right? And my team basically took care of the music part to connect various content providers like music labels or individual creators with the Spotify platform and actually getting the content in and make it playable. And so it's a lot about, first of all, understanding the creator side, you know, all the licensing terms and deals that we have in place and stuff like that. And then also understanding the 
user experience side, actually like making sure that we can surface the content in the right way in the Spotify app and so on. But what made it interesting to me was this extremely high volume and everything. You know, most parts of the Spotify experience involve playing some kind of audio or displaying some kind of information about the content that's being used. And so all of the services involved were extremely high traffic with like millions and millions of requests per second generally. And generally, if there were incidents, it would affect a large part of the Spotify user experience as well. So it was a sort of high stakes part of the service platform, I would say. Do you have some particularly memorable war stories from those days? Oh, I mean, (laughs) so many things. We have had incidents where it has led to more than an hour of outage for the entire Spotify experience that basically came down to a simple typo in a config file, something like that, you know, something silly where we just didn't anticipate that that small thing would require extra validation or that we would have to consider gradually rolling out changes or something like that. And so those became extremely expensive, but insightful learnings for us to sort of harden the, the pipeline all the way. Yeah, and hopefully slowly pass some of those learnings on to slightly less extreme services that over time became just as extreme. Right, right. So a common thing that happened in that team was that we were often the first ones to encounter some limitation. Like one funny example is that we were the first ones to hit the limits in DNS package sizes. We had so many instances of a service that it would no longer fit in the normal sort of DNS service discovery protocol that we use at Spotify. And so we had to find ways of basically masquerading multiple instances behind one IP address in various ways just to make the service work. And no one had encountered that problem before because no one had that many instances of a service before. Yeah. And then a few years later, Spotify is another some percent larger. And now the next tier of services is seeing the same thing. And you guys blazed that trail already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That sounds like a super fun place to be, at least for a while. So tell me about the other transition you spoke about. You said, not only are you in platform now, but you used to be a staff engineer. And now you said you're a principal PM. So talk to me about transitioning from being an engineer to being a PM. That transition was quite interesting, actually, because basically I was in a position where I was looking for like a new challenge that was very different from what I was doing before, because I had sort of cemented myself as being deeply focused on the back-end domain of Spotify as an engineer. So I felt like, okay, I don't want to only stay here. Like I want to grow in some different direction. And so my sort of manager at the time offered me to become first the interim product area lead for a product area that we had just created. And then later on, I took on that role as a full-time job. And it was very new to me to have to figure out not only what does product mean, and then also having to work out how to best position the missions of various squads and align that with our product direction and sort of work out ways of working for a product area size team. What's a product area? What sort of scale are we talking about here? What is it that you were leading? Yeah, so we call it the backend foundations team at Spotify. And so we basically build and operate all of the fundamental infrastructure backing up our services at Spotify. So we enable all the other developers at Spotify to deploy services many thousands of times per day, and we support tens of thousands of service instances across our cloud footprint. And we also own and maintain the libraries and frameworks that people use internally to build those services as well. So we own, on the one hand, the entire lifecycle of services, and on the other hand, the sort of CI/CD journey, you could say, for bringing changes into production and being able to do the things you want to do in a service, like using databases and calling other services and performing monitoring and, and, and stuff like that. 
That sounds like a super interesting space. I can understand why you'd have transitioned there. So then let's go back to, you said declarative infra was kind of the thing that made you move over to the platform team. So tell me about declarative infra and why is it so exciting for you that you like literally pivoted your career around <laughs> this idea? Right. So it was one of those moments where my team at the time hit limits before anyone else. And the limit we hit was that we were maintaining so much infrastructure that it became unbearable to maintain it via what I like to call click ops, which is, you know, when you... You have a task in mind and you have to go through some sort of admin tool or like a cloud portal or something to accomplish that goal. So imagine that you have a, a database, right? And you want to, you know, add a backup policy, right? And that's simple to do if you have one database. But if you have hundreds of databases, it suddenly becomes quite unbearable. And we found this especially to be tricky when it came to sort of very granular pieces of configuration that we wanted to get right. For example, setting up permissions in just the right way so that nothing has too wide permissions and everything is right size in that sense. I wanted to start solving that programmatically and at a larger scale. So the big pivot with declarative infra is that it's basically a tool for performing large scale changes across our infrastructure in a programmatic way. So infrastructure as code taking to its extreme, you could say. So my vision for this going into this was to have the desired state of Spotify's infrastructure in some central place and then have the platform own the problem of working out how to satisfy that desired state and to flip it around like that. So as, as a platform user, you would focus on describing that need and sort of you would be able to programmatically work out that description and then you wouldn't be having to go through a click-ops process to actually make that description reality. That would be the job of the underlying platform. Do you have some examples? Like, what does that look like, I guess, from either side? Maybe from the feature side first and then from the product side? From the feature side, you might have a, some sense of what you want to build. And I tend to think about this on like a why, what, how spectrum, right? So you, you have some business goal you want to satisfy, right? You might want to build a new feature. And as an engineer, you naturally think about it as like, okay, so I need to build a new service and then it has a database and it needs a cache. And then maybe I need a data processing pipeline somewhere that computes the data that, to put in the database. And that's the what description of the problem, right? What you in the end want to build. And so as a feature developer, you would use that information and, and just put that into declarations, like, you know, configuration files, YAML files of like, yeah, I want a database. I want a service. I want a cache here. And then that configuration goes through the same type of CI/CD journey that you're used to from your normal sort of workflow as an engineer. So your peers get the chance to review those changes. You get sort of a preview or like you can test what those changes would look like if applied to production. And then eventually those changes get released. And so what happens at that point is that the platform looks at those changes and tries to reconcile reality with that description of the infrastructure. And that's the how part, right? Like how do we actually satisfy that? So the platform would call out to the cloud APIs or, you know, create any sort of service accounts, permissions, secrets, whatever we need to sort of satisfy that need. And that's the general model, I would say. How is this super different for the feature teams? Because if they want to create a database, I'm picturing, I don't know, you jump into the cloud console, you click new database instance, where it sounds like what you're describing is I write into some text file, I don't know, number of database instances equals one instead of zero or whatever, and yeah, then I commit yeah. that. So like... I still just went somewhere and said, I want a database. And then something created that database for me. I think the big difference is you get sort of reproducibility and predictability to a much greater extent, right? So if we have some best practices that we want to apply, then we can sort of encode that in configuration and make sure that it's consistent across a large 
set of services, let's say. And it becomes a lot easier to check that. While if you want to ensure that there is consistency with ClickOps, you would have to sort of manually go through and verify, oh yeah, is this setting the same in this database and that database and that database? So I think that's the big difference there. Especially if you have either a lot of supposed to be identical things or like things that you're trying to replicate, then yeah, of course, I mean, having it in something that looks like code is a lot easier than trying to click the same buttons again, especially if it's, I don't know, months or years apart. So I think the other thing you said earlier was that this was a way to make kind of significant changes at scale. So this thing that you and I just talked about, where you can create a database easier, that's one thing. How does that make you make significant changes that's at scale across huge numbers of instances of these things? I think the key difference is that something that used to be a sort of person problem or like something you would have to ask people to do now becomes something that you can ask a machine to do. Like suddenly something that becomes a process problem now becomes an engineering problem. So what this has allowed us to do is to employ various tools for checking across the entire fleet at Spotify. You know, what are people doing with databases? Like what type of configuration do they currently have? What are some of the emerging patterns there? And like, are they sort of adhering to policies or not? And you can do that at scale as well. And then if there is a difference, you can very easily automate performing those changes as well. Like you could just send a lot of pull requests saying, hey, oh, you accidentally provisioned this database in the wrong GCP region. That's costing us a lot of extra networking overhead costs. So why don't you move it to this region instead? And that can just be a simple PR as opposed to having to ask someone's manager or like a large set of teams to perform those sort of migrations manually, basically. That sounds a lot like I think when we were talking to Nicholas earlier in episode 12, that fleet management was doing some pretty similar things with code. Is that kind of the same sort of thing? Or is that like a different thing that's part of declarative infra? Or how do the two play together? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, there's actually a, a sort of interesting symbiosis there. So from the one perspective, when the fleet management program started, declarative infra became one of the sort of work streams within that program. Because we saw a lot of value in having declarative infra play that part of enabling us to apply policies at scale through refactoring. Through the fleet management program, something we can suddenly do is to say, okay, we want this to hold true for all databases at Spotify. So let's roll out that as a fleet-wide refactoring change across all of the configuration. But then sort of interesting as well is that those tools for performing the refactorings were eventually also integrated into declarative infra. So now you could declare a refactoring rule on top of declarative infra to perform refactoring rules across other repositories, let's say. So there's been this sort of interesting symbiosis there, where in the end, all you're doing is declaring a desired state of Spotify as a whole, and then fleet management takes care of rolling that out. I sometimes playfully call this an eventually consistent monorepo model. Like you have one change that, that starts somewhere small and then eventually percolates out into a lot of different repos, a lot of different services, but it all sort of like happens automatically over time. Do you have some examples of like actual times where we've done this with like kind of more concrete things to make it easier to imagine less abstractly? Yeah, so a pretty common challenge for a team is to predict how their service will scale over time. And so you might start out building a service that either has a very small sort of resource quota or has some default resource quota that you haven't thought about whether you need to change. And so Spotify has, of course, been wanting to be more efficient there, like utilize our cloud resources more efficiently. And one key way of doing that is to right-size the resources that we have at our disposal, right? So to say, oh yeah, actually you provisioned this database and you told us to create 10 instances, but actually you might only need two. And so that's a type of analysis where 
we can make that analysis centrally and then roll out changes across the entire service to just right-size all databases. And that can be something that we automate, which previously would have been something where we would have to ask each individual engineer to please review your current service usage, estimate how many database instances you need, and then to actually correct that manually. And so that's the type of work we would be avoiding with this model. And I guess with some of this, it seems like really awesome and relatively, I'll hesitantly call it like revolutionary. And some of this seems a little like, I think you mentioned infrastructure as code earlier. Some of the moving away from ClickOps stuff seems a little bit like we're talking about this in 2023 at a company that has like half a billion MAUs. So like, how is Spotify kind of doing all of this stuff and doing it in 2023? Is there some more history here or what? what's going on? <laughs> so I think Spotify has always been famous for its autonomy. And we came from a world where we would run our own data centers. And when you run your own data centers, there's a very different set of constraints that you have to think about as a developer. And a lot of the choices you make are pertaining to those constraints. So back in the days, for example, when you want to think about provisioning a database, you would have to think about, okay, someone has to walk down to the data center and provision some additional blade servers and put them in a, a server rack. And we need to be mindful of the constraints of doing that. And then you as a developer are responsible for you know, installing the right database software on those VMs and thinking a lot about the topology of that and so on. And so a lot of that culture persisted when we moved into the cloud. And especially because Spotify employed a, what I would call a, like a lift and shift model, like we tried to basically take the existing architecture and the existing setup for services and preserve that structure as much as possible to make the migration easier. That meant that we ended up in a cloud environment where a lot of assumptions persisted that were made in a data center context. And so might not make sense anymore or might be very sort of, you know, there's a high variance in that sort of footprint. So that's where we're coming from. And so it came to us pretty late to realize this need that we actually need to do something about this. We came from a, an on-premise world where many of the assumptions that we made then no longer hold true. So we need to sort of massively shift our assumptions and invest in sort of a new tool for dealing with this. Maybe the, the super direct question then is, so in the data centers, we were very click and felt like that was okay. So on the one hand, I think we were quite ClickOpsy in the sense that you would install some basic version of a tool and then configure it through a GUI, let's say. And on the other hand, where we had automation, we used tools like Puppet, for example, right? Puppet is a little bit of a more old school tool for managing infrastructure configuration, where you basically define what are called classes and roles for what you expect to run on a certain VM or on a certain server. And it's a lot more fine-grained than what we built with the Cloud to Infra. You're expected to tell Puppet what particular software packages you want to see installed, what configuration files should look like, changes to firewall configuration or network configuration, and things like that. So we had some automation for infrastructure configuration management, but that configuration was very sort of VM and host-centric and a lot about doing the low-level nitty-gritty things that you don't really want to be doing, like installing you know, <laughs> the right Debian packages and making the right firewall rules and stuff like that. And it's not really the level of abstraction that we would want an average application developer to have to deal with. We had some automation in that world, but it wasn't on the level of abstraction that we would like to be. And that's where we can now be with declarative infrastructure. You talked a lot about, and we both come from more of kind of a backend background, but is this largely for backend services and databases and things like the examples we had? Or does it really work across all of our platforms? I think when we started out with declarative infrastructure, we were mostly looking at how do we 
configure the sort of raw cloud footprint that we have. So we looked at all of the cloud products that we use, be it databases or PubSub queues or service deployment mechanisms or things like that. And we thought about the problem as let's encapsulate those. Let's try to still expose developers to those sort of pristine concepts, like those pristine resources, but just encapsulate the configuration of them. And then architecture emerges from that. What you build in a sort of semantic sense using those cloud resources lives outside of the declarative infra. But after a while, we started realizing that there are these patterns within Spotify that we can actually model the same way. So instead of saying, you know, hey, I want a database, you probably also want an autoscaler, a backup policy, failover rules between different cloud regions, things like that. And that's something we can bundle up and package together as an abstraction. And then we realized that we could move even higher up the abstraction levels by even trying to model our software using this model. So today it's actually possible to, for example, declare a data pipeline or declare a, you know, what we call a data endpoint, where it's sort of a way for us to model data at rest using this abstraction as well, or more complex sort of things where we say, okay, serve the data out of this data endpoint as a point lookup service with low latency. And then that sort of composes out into many, many small building blocks that together solve that larger problem. But as a user, you just have to declare, okay, I would like this data to be available as a low latency point lookup service, basically. And then regardless of it's a database or if it's six databases, or if, like you said, it's a message queue like PubSub or something, all of that kind of gets created from one, I want a point lookup service. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very cool. And then I guess that you can theoretically apply to things that aren't just backend, it's just whatever it needs to be can create this kind of package. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how this thing actually works. Like it's, it sounds very cool. It's kind of magical. Like what sort of technology is it based on? How did we decide on that technology? Like, give me that part of the story. I mentioned words like desired state and reconciliation and things like that previously. And of course, to many people, the alarm bells should go off and they might automatically hear Kubernetes, right? And yes, so declarative infra is very much built on Kubernetes and the Kubernetes model, with the big difference being that when most people think about Kubernetes, they probably think about running code or like running services. And then there's a bunch of things around that, that Kubernetes adds in terms of value, like auto-scaling or exposing your service to the internet. And basically we took that part, like the sort of stuff on the side that people might not consider as being a crucial part of Kubernetes. and invested only in that part. The objects, let's say, you, you declare, or what are called resources in the Kubernetes world, that you declare in on-declare to infra, they are just metadata, but it gets applied to essentially a Kubernetes cluster. And then we have operators or controllers that look at that metadata and then reconcile that desired state with the real world in a cloud environment. And so as a result, what you actually declare doesn't end up running in Kubernetes. So, you know, if you create a, I don't know, Postgres database, right? In a normal Kubernetes cluster, you might actually run Postgres as pods in the Kubernetes cluster itself. While what we try to do is to use the most suitable cloud vendor to provide that service instead and to expose that as a managed endpoint to whatever service needs that declarative object, basically. So that's the model we have employed. On the lowest level, we have controllers and operators in declarative infrastructure that just talk to the various cloud vendors that we interact with. And that enables you to sort of create those raw cloud resources that are available in those cloud vendors. 
And on top of that, we build custom operators that take a higher level abstraction and might spit out the lower level primitives that it uses to compose that higher level offering. And in some cases, we also build custom controllers or operators that talk to Spotify-specific APIs to do something that is unique to just how Spotify works internally. And so all of this runs in standard Kubernetes clusters, but does actions on other things as opposed to creating workloads in this cluster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In my head, I want to figure out whatever the opposite of like a headless cluster is. It seems like it's almost that because it's like the head for a bunch of other clusters. Yeah. This pattern is seemingly becoming increasingly common in the Kubernetes community as well, where we have a control plane cluster and then workload clusters that are separate from that. So how did you settle on that? When you first started doing this, I imagine there were dozens of different things you could do. And I'm guessing that this isn't too far from some fairly well-adopted industry things like Terraform comes to mind, like that sort of stuff. So we definitely wanted to do our due diligence and look at all the alternatives in this space. I would say there's two dimensions that one might consider. So there's one dimension, which is about how much is this configuration going to be actual runnable code versus declared data? So if you think about that difference, like on the one extreme, you might have a TypeScript or HTL or something program that outputs the type of resources that should get provisioned. And then what a platform like that would do is to run that program, look at the output and say, okay, I will create these things. That's the sort of coding extreme, right? And so on the other extreme, you would have treating this configuration as data where you just describe the desired state and any sort of automations you might have on top of that, maybe generate 10 databases that should all look somewhat the same, but just with a different name, let's say, that would have to happen before. You know, like you would have to output that data and maybe commit that into Git or uh, do it like that. And so along that axis, we were looking for a solution that offered functionality close to the data side of that extreme. Because if you want to do the type of changes I talked about with regards to fleet management, where you want to look at all the databases that exist within Spotify and find the ones that might require a configuration change and then apply that configuration change. That's only possible if you're dealing with data. While if you have a program where you say, oh yeah, this, the output of this program is wrong, how should I tweak the program so that it produces the right output? That's like a very hard problem. That's like almost halting problem hard. You know? <laughs> That's why we were looking for that and not the extreme. And then the other dimension is about you know, how much is this sort of just a scaffolding tool that runs you know, during deploy time versus how much is it also something that sort of lives alongside your cloud footprint and sort of has a runtime, let's say. Like Terraform, first of all, is somewhere near the middle of the first spectrum I mentioned. Like it's both sort of data and code. But on the other hand, also only lives during deployment time. You make a plan, it looks at the state of the world, and then it applies some changes. But there's nowhere you can go to just ask, hey, how many of this type of abstraction exist? How many of the desired states that we have have failed to be applied. That type of question is not possible to answer in Terraform. And the reason why we then decided to go for a Kubernetes-based approach is Kubernetes allows you to ask those kinds of questions. So if you want to list all the services within the company, you can do that. You can ask the Kubernetes API. If you want to filter by certain criteria, you can also do that. Before we go on, just because you mentioned it, I need to make you explain the halting problem. Because I giggled (laughs) when you said that and then realized that there may be plenty of people that don't appreciate what you just said. So the halting problem is basically, can you write a program that can tell if a different program will terminate? A program terminates if it runs 
its course and then produces some result, while a program that doesn't terminate might eventually enter an infinite loop or diverge infinitely recursively or something like that. And it turns out to be provably impossible to write a program that verifies whether another program terminates, because what you can do if you had such a program is you could alter that program so that if it detects that another program would halt, it itself would never halt. If the program detects that the program will never halt, it itself will go into an infinite loop. And if it detects that a program would go into an infinite loop, it itself would halt. And then if you feed that program to itself, it could not possibly have any well-defined behavior. We're not talking about whether a program will halt here, but actually whether a program will produce a certain output, right? So in the infrastructure as code example, we might want to find a way to tweak a program so that it declares a database with the right number of instances. But if you think about what that program might look like, it might be some complex math expression that results in the number of instances being computed, right? And so it's going to be hard to work yourself back and find the logic that determined that number of instances, basically. And I wouldn't say it's equally as hard as the halting problem, <laughs> but it could potentially be, right? Like it, it's, it's a complex space. I'm sure that there are computer science PhD students that will pick apart the logic of comparing the two, but <laughs> I will accept that answer. <laughs> uh, digging back into the implementation a little bit, is the thing actually backed similarly to Kubernetes? Like all the data is stored in a NetCD database and we access it through like a Kubernetes API server, or is there like Kubernetes model, but the actual implementation and deployment is very different in some kind of Spotify declarative infra way? One design goal was that we wanted to not invent too much new technology. So we are literally using Kubernetes. Like we are using an actual hosted Kubernetes instance, or actually now it's several instances. And we are interacting with the actual API server in those Kubernetes clusters. And of course, there is some overhead because that those clusters are capable of also running workloads. But that turns out to be also something that we actually need, right? Because those controllers and operators need to run somewhere. So those are the only workloads that actually run in that Kubernetes cluster. But we don't have any actual services running there. So in the end, we could probably do something smarter with like a smaller infrastructure footprint that was specialized for this use case. But since we end up actually using most of the capabilities in Kubernetes, RBAC, like authentication authorization, actually running code in form of the controllers and operators, then the API server model that lets us express what are called custom resource definitions and custom resources. It ended up being a, a natural choice for us, actually. So then maybe the extreme of that would be, why not just share the Kubernetes clusters that all of our actual workloads run in? That's something we considered from the beginning. Something that turned out to be tricky then was that the topology of service clusters follows a very different constraints from the constraints that we had for declarative infra. For example, the main reason why Spotify as a whole tries to run services across many clusters around the globe is to sort of cater to the service levels of the services running within those clusters. So we try to run services that are important to users in the Americas in the Americas, right? So that there's low latency and so that there's high availability and equivalent for Europe and Asia and so on. And so that means that the shape of those clusters and what ends up running in them is very much tailored towards that. While for declarative infra, it's much more important to, for example, have a shared source of truth for configuration. Like you don't want competing definitions for what a database should look like. One definition living in Europe and another in the Americas <laughs> and one in Asia, you know, then, yeah. you know, they would fight over who, whoever is correct. So it was much more important that 
for every individual infrastructure piece that gets declared has a single source of truth. And so that was most easily done in the beginning with a single cluster. And nowadays, what we do is we have multiple clusters, but each piece of infrastructure has one cluster that currently defines its canonical source of truth for that configuration. Oh, I got you. That's interesting. So there are multiple clusters, but each cluster or each type of thing has a home cluster. Yeah. And actually, this is something that is currently evolving a little bit. So we're actually working out better ways of doing this because it's maybe not a desirable property that if one cloud region goes down, that a portion of your infrastructure is inaccessible. We're talking about the control plane here, so it's not the end of the world. Like You can still go to the underlying APIs if there was an incident, but we need to work out a strategy where maybe there's some sort of hot standby model or, or some other way where we can have high resilience, even if there was an outage in one of these clusters, basically. And so just so we're clear that the words I'm using mean the same thing as the words you're using, does this mean that like a single Kubernetes cluster owns the definition of what like a big table cluster means and some other one might own what a pub sub queue looks like? Or is there a slightly different definition of what like what thing is in this case? So the way we have sharded this is actually across what we call systems at Spotify. So we try to say that everything pertaining to a specific feature or significant component of the Spotify service ecosystem lives together. And that mostly has some benefits because often you want resources to be able to refer to one another. So you might want to be able to say that, okay, I have this service here and it's going to post messages on this message queue. And then each message on the queue is going to get saved into this database. And like this database gets dumped into a huge dump every hour or something, right? And so to maintain that integrity those resources sort of need to live together and be able to point to each other. So right now, that means that they live in the same cluster. Again, it's still not ideal because of the sort of blast radius problem that I mentioned, but that's something that we're actively working towards solving right now. And so then you said that you evaluated a bunch of other technologies and started looking into this. Does something similar like this exist today, or is this still really like a pretty unique solution? If you were starting today, you would still do it the way you did instead of like some other thing that has come to exist since you started? I still haven't found any cross-vendor solution to this. So I know that there are vendors who have worked out similar models that are unique to one cloud offering, let's say, but nothing that's truly vendor-neutral in the same way. On the flip side, we're seeing more and more products and companies starting to employ this pattern where they offer Kubernetes controllers to control infrastructure that's managed in some other environment or even products that build on the sort of meta level of composing multiple lower level resources into a higher level resource. One CNCF technology that comes to mind is Crossplane, right? Which is like encapsulates this as its key product. So I do think that we would likely pick a very similar tech stack today if we were to start over. I'm not sure though. Like, of course, we would have to do our due diligence and really evaluate that anew. But I would guess that we would end up in a very similar situation today. Tell me a little bit about how this process got going. So you picked this implementation, you started doing some things on the platform side, but I imagine the company already had, I don't know, however many components and services and had already done the cloud migration. How did you go from all the things that got created by ClickOps and everything we talked about before to this state where everything is now managed through declarative infra and fleet management and uh, all of the nice things we talked about. So I guess the key 
starting point was to understand the problem, right? And especially to understand what aspects of our infrastructure would actually benefit from being modeled this way. Because the type of resources that get created very frequently or for one-off tests or for experiments might actually just not benefit from this model at all. It might slow people down to have to go through a lot of extra process involved in sort of declaring their resources and going through that model if they're only going to do a one-off experiment that lasts a week or a day. So first we tried to map out, okay, what are actually all the resources that support production? And then what's the opportunity cost? You know, are there any risks involved if we don't manage the configuration of those resources, you know, from a reliability, security, productivity perspective, or just playing out cost perspective? And so once we had a somewhat decent understanding of that scope, we tried to figure out, okay, so now how do we make it as easy as possible for the current developers who maintain these resources to adopt this model. And the approach we decided to bet on was to basically build what we call an import tool. So a tool that would look at our current cloud footprint for a certain service or for a certain GCP project or something like that and import those resources into the declarative infra. So to generate equivalent configuration declarations that match the current state of the infrastructure so that when you then deploy that configuration, nothing changes. Your infrastructure remains the same. It will just be taken over and be managed by the declarative infrastructure platform. And so once we had that tool in place, we would basically ask everyone who we deem to be in scope of this to just tell us, okay, are we ready to import these resources and which Git repository should we put the config file in? And that was basically the main decision that we made our end users make on their own. And then we tried to automate everything after that as much as possible. How did that go? How long did that process take? Was there pushback, things like that? In the beginning, we tried to go for a mostly organic approach and to lead with just building amazing tooling on top of this abstraction. So, for example, one value proposition was that if you move over your database configuration to declare to infra, we can sort of take care of automating the things I mentioned before, like backups, auto-scaling, application policies regarding cross-regional routing and stuff like that. So adding some value in that sense. And we saw a lot of people adopt the tool for that reason, because they wanted those additional add-ons, basically. But then we came to the realization that this is working great, like people are using this tool, but we could move a lot quicker and we would get a lot more benefits out of moving more quickly. So we started to uh, treat it as a program instead and to actually push adoption as much as possible. So we developed basically tools that teams around the company could use to see how many percent of their cloud infrastructure was using declarative infra versus not, and some related metrics around that leading to adoption being increased from sort of a microscopic perspective. And so we ran that program, I think, let's think. So in 2019 was the first declarative infra MVP. During 2020, a lot of things happened, but among, among those things, we saw some significant declarative infra adoption, but not the majority of Spotify. And then near the end of 2020, going into 2021, that's when the fleet management program started, I believe. And it became a higher and higher priority to the company to sort of move all of our cloud resources into this model. And so we finished that, you know, late 2022, we had, I think, around 90% of all of Spotify using this model. So one could say it took maybe a year and a half or two years to adopt this model. But that sounds incredibly good, given the size of the company and the amount of stuff. 90% is an excellent number. I want to like congratulate you for, for getting there. That's, that's great. 
So what's been the impact you've seen from that? Like, of course, we talked about some of the things you can do, but do you see feature teams not worrying about this infrastructure? Do you see people like just generally being more productive? Like what sort of impact have you seen on our ability to get things done and deliver like actual Spotify customer value? I think on the one hand, we have seen the pattern I mentioned earlier take off a lot more where since people can basically assume that most of the cloud footprint that we have is encapsulated via the cloud infra, they can build more powerful abstractions on top of that. So we see teams taking even more specialized concerns that are a lot closer to the particular domain of that feature. And we see that team building abstractions on top of the cloud infra where they always need a database and a message queue or something like that set up in a certain way. They build that abstraction themselves on top of the cloud infra. And so this means that we can build a lot more bespoke infrastructure of much better tailored platform primitives that cater to these specific feature needs. And that also means that the platform or you know, like the sort of lowest level infrastructure teams can start relying on those primitives as well. So we have started offering more managed solutions for key value storage or caching, or soon we're hopefully going to build <laughs> a solution to the problem I mentioned before, which is like taking some data from a data pipeline and serving that as a point lookup service and offer that as a managed solution to people. And that means that they don't have to build that type of repetitive pattern, that repetitive architectural pattern themselves, and can focus on actually delivering end user value instead. And so it sounds like you are having a lot of the impact that you've initially set out to change some of these things, like change the relationship between feature teams and platform teams and change the way that this stuff gets done. Yeah, I mean, we could always do more, right? So of course, there's always going to be pockets that we can't fully reach and where we can do better. And I think that's something I'm very passionate about, understanding what aren't we doing well right now and sort of where can we fill the gaps? I don't think so, you could have set up my next thought better. What's next? What are you doing now? So my personal vision for this is that we will start offering higher and higher level and more managed services within Spotify. The thing I'm most excited about is to actually encapsulate services like running code in the backend using this model as well. Because today, most people at Spotify still basically use the vanilla Kubernetes model for running services, where you configure deployment and uh, autoscaler and uh, you know some service discovery mechanism and things like this. And we are, I think, moving into a world at Spotify where we could have a significantly higher abstraction to that. So imagine something like a cloud functions or Lambda style interface or sort of a platform as a service interface to deploying services. So I think that's a model that I'm very focused on getting to at Spotify. But then we're seeing a lot of other people around our platform build different types of higher level abstractions. And so those are also going to hopefully keep trickling in and we're going to hopefully get more and more organic adoption of this pattern that way as well. That sounds great. Thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. What other things do you nerd out about? <laughs> oh, I do too many things, I, I would say. Um, my main interest is currently in designing machines for automatic fabrication, like 3D printers or like CNC mills or other type of robotic machines like that. So not building stuff, it's designing the machines that build the stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then it's a full, you know, the machines themselves build the next generation of themselves. I really like the Repra project, which is around the concept of making self-replicating machines. I consider myself part of that movement. Other than that, you know, I'm very into rock climbing. I also sing in 
actually in several choirs. I have a sailing boat and we go sailing in the Stockholm Archipelago during the summers. And That's just so, required yeah. if you live in Stockholm for a long time, right? <laughs> they just give you one. Yeah, I wish, you know, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or feedback, email us at nerdout at spotify.com. Nerd Out at Spotify is produced by Spotify's Ted Vergekis and by Seaplan Armada, who also wrote our colossal theme song. I'm Dave Zolotuski. Thanks for nerding out with us. 